0: Snuff production. This is Real Crime, Australian Detectives. I'm investigative journalist Adam Shand, and these are the stories of the men and women who work the iconic cases of our times. I first met retired Detective Inspector David Plumpton when making my podcast about the 1969 disappearance of Hobart woman Lucille Butterworth, which you can find in Real Crime Features. Plumpton's great strength as an investigator was in creating rapport with crooks. A great example of his skills was the pursuit of double murderer Marco Daniel Rusterholz, where he persuaded a crucial witness to cooperate and give evidence in court against a cruel and pitiless killer.
1: This murder occurred in Launceston, which is in the northern part of the state. At the time, I was the detective inspector for an area called Glenorchy, which is the northern suburbs of Hobart, which is about two, two and a half hours from Launceston. But one of the victims, or sorry, both victims, had only recently moved to Launceston from Hobart. And as events unfolded, the offenders and those involved had a lot of interactions with Hobart, came to Hobart. So we formed a um, task group monitoring, investigating involving Launceston and Glenorchy detectives. Now, as the detective inspector, I was responsible for managing the Hobart southern part of that investigation and dealing regularly with those from Launceston. The end result was all the forensics, all the um, initial Crime involvement was in Launceston, but the offenders and witnesses were in Hobart, and so we managed it from Hobart. Let's roll back. How did you get into the force? I went down to be a police cadet with a close friend of mine, Daryl Hind. I remember sitting outside the police headquarters just on this uh, bench. Next minute, we're waiting. We had interviews and we're waiting to be told whether we could come back and all this type of thing, and these two blokes walked into this building, police headquarters. It was summer. They had their jackets flipped over their shoulders. They had ties and shirts on. They walked in. They looked at me and they went, hey, boys, and walked in. I said, I want to be one of them. Now, how childish is that? How childish is that? All I wanted to be from that time was a detective. And it became a bit of an embarrassment in that we'd be trading and people would ask, who wants to be a detective? I'd be the only fool to put my hand up. Everybody else wanted to be traffic policeman or go do a number of things. But I had this image of those two detectives. So there was no great uh, moment. There was no great event. It was just childish. Something childish went through my mind on that morning.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I'd say youthful, not childish. And what do you think defined their difference to the uniform guys and the other plainclothes officers? Oh, not that
1: look... I must say, I wouldn't recommend going to... I went to the CIB, I'd argue, too early in my career in that I didn't stop and smell the roses and have as... When you first join, it's a lot of fun. Oh, it's a serious job, don't get me wrong. But you're running around with your mates, doing bits and pieces. But, but when you go to the CIB, it becomes deadly serious. It becomes serious very early on. And an example of that is... When you are a detective, so I can be a detective constable, with that, an event occurs, uh, a major crime or a crime. I will turn up and a sergeant or inspector will hand over to me. That is, because you are the detective, they give you that investigation. So all of a sudden, you're no longer the constable who just turns up and guards the scene. You're no longer the constable who, Doric traffic. You have responsibility for initiating an investigation and the fact that a sergeant hands over to a constable just because you were in a suit came to me very early on. I'd do it all again, don't get me wrong, but the seriousness of being in the CIB, listen, I don't want to downplay being in any other role and say the CIB is significantly more than um, VNA general duties officer, traffic officer, marine police, whatever, but...
0: Yeah, the relative seriousness is imprinted on you very early. But I think also your style of policing is to talk to people and I think there's no better way of learning that skill than being in uniform, walking the beat, attending all kinds of matters that might be quite trivial to quite serious and you learn that facility. When did you learn that you had, a, I guess, an ability to talk to people? Oh, look, the only skill, what I noticed...
1: Everybody wants to be the rounded detective, that is the detective who's got all the skills, but there are different detectives. There are detectives who are brilliant at spade work. They pick up, they notice things. There are analytical detectives. There are detectives that can overview any number of investigations and put things together. The only skill I had, if it was a skill, was the capacity to have people tell me things that they may not normally tell somebody. That was it. So I would talk to somebody and I found that people would, whether it was the way I looked, whether it was the way I spoke, would have some degree of trust in me. So uh, early on, witnesses, even informants, would tell me things and I always respected them for doing that and later on, That skill developed, and I think it does over time, that when it comes to interviewing people in relation to crimes, some way, somehow, people, even offenders, would tell me things. Yeah. We used to joke about, yeah, and I know it sounds trite, but the role of a detective is to sell you jail. I convince you in a discussion to tell me something that the only result can be you'll go to jail and maybe go to jail for a very long time. Now, when you strip everything down, why would somebody do that? Particularly when I begin a conversation by saying to you, you're not obliged to say anything or do anything, but whatever you say or do will be recorded and may be given in evidence, I'm saying to you, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to talk to me. So not only am I trying to engage in a conversation with you, I am starting that conversation off by saying don't say
0: anything. The well-schooled crooks would say nothing, wouldn't speak to you. Exactly. So this murder, Angela Hallam and Joshua Newman, what was your first knowledge of it? I was, uh, I was also
1: the... Uh, State Coordinator, Commander of the Police Negotiation Unit, and we had Negotiation Unit training at the Police Academy when I got a phone call from um, Angela Hallam's sister and I also got a phone call from another detective sergeant indicating that Angela Hallam had been murdered in Launceston, and this was on the Thursday morning. The murder had occurred on a Wednesday. Think, well, what was Wednesday, the 15th of August? So Thursday, the 16th of August, I'm at the Police Academy, coordinating, negotiation and training when I got a phone call and that's the first indication that Angela and Joshua had been murdered. So what happened from there for you? Angela Hallen was a young lady from Hobart who was very well known amongst criminal circles. She was a scammer in a lot of ways. I liked the lady. I'd had dealings with her in the recent past that related to this event but Angela hallen bounced around every conceivable, she'd pop up, at various locations with various people all involved in crime and somehow or other she had scammed her way through something. But her sister was married to possibly the most respected and feared crime person in the state. Angela would use that relationship when dealing with others. Angela did knock around initially with a lot of armed robbers and was always about with them. But she got involved in dealing drugs, not so much dealing drugs, she'd do things, but she'd rip off or get drugs, not pay for them. She'd rely on the fact that her friends and associates were hard men and the most recent dealings I'd had with her up until about three or four days before the murder was she'd reported her motor vehicle stolen after it had been recovered. However... The vehicle had been chased by police, had evaded police with a well-known armed robber driving and a female as the passenger. I knew, we knew, Angela knew, we knew that she was the passenger in that vehicle. It was her vehicle. The vehicle was recovered and here it was. She came in to report the vehicle stolen. This is what she did. She bounced around with all these different people. What we did know, that she had a relationship with a person previously by the name of Marco Rusterholz, and there was talk that she'd ripped Rusterholz off uh, uh, drug money. Now, that was nothing new. Angela would do that. (laughs) Angela would have, um, like, if you let something around, um, she'd take drugs or whatever, but she had this likeable trait around it. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, she forms a relationship with... um, The young fellow, Joshua Newman, who was real, he was unknown to police. He was 10 years her junior. He was an amateur boxer, but he was a nice young fellow. He had nothing to do with armed robberies. He wasn't an armed robber. He wasn't a drug dealer. But he obviously fell for, and you can understand why, he fell for Angela Hallam and for some reason they moved to Launceston. Launceston was the home of Marco Rusterholz. Let me explain Marco Rusterholz. Marco Rusterholz was a white supremacist. He was a powerlifter and was known within powerlifting circles. He was a big, strong man, obviously. He had associates but at lower level tier criminal associates, if this makes sense. He wasn't known amongst the armed robbers. He wasn't known amongst the hard men of crime. But what he had done, he had a contact in Sydney, New South Wales, that could provide him with pharmaceutical drugs, Oxycontin and Xanax, to go on the slope. He got these drugs and supplied them to another family in Hobart that dealt in um, particular pharmaceutical drugs. That was making a lot of money, significant amounts of money, and in all honesty, he, down, he was flying under the radar because of that. He dealt in cannabis, he dealt in amphetamines, but he was getting bigger contacts in the amphetamine world and the uh, powder drug world because of his money. He had the backing to buy into some of these drugs. So, Did he have a history of violence? Not well known to police, not well known to police, but he was big, strong, hard man in a lot of ways. He's married to a nice lady with eight children in Law system, and he's got a relationship, he had a relationship with Angela Helen, and Angela had ripped him off for drugs and money, which is what Angela mm-hmm. did. So Cove no surprise to anybody else when she didn't, but um Kate was a big surprise to him. At the same time, he, so he'd had this relationship with Angela, but then he'd formed a relationship with another lady by the name of Sally Mayer, Sally McWhyme. Sally lived in Hobart. Ruska Holtz is having this relationship now with Sally Mayer, Sally Maguire. Bearing in his mind, he's married, lives in Launceston. I think he was still visiting Angela. Sally didn't like Angela, but no one would seriously go after Angela or cause her any difficulty because of the reputation that surrounded her and she would very quickly drop the name of her brother-in-law and uh, people would shut up very quickly or leave her alone because they didn't want to cross that part of the family. But Sally McGuire had a big thing about um, Angela Hallam and continually was on to Marco Rusterholtz, get rid of her, and ran her down, get rid of her. You've got to do something about it, all this type of thing. So Rusterholtz had this two-focus issue with Angela that is, one, she ripped him off for a serious amount of money and drugs, two, his current girlfriend was annoyed and um, wanted something done about her, wanted her gone, never said in any way, shape or form, I want her murdered or anything like that, but indicated she had to get out of the picture and he had to do something about it. So in the back of his mind, Russ dolson has got this on and amongst all of this, for some unbeknown reason, Angela packs up and moves to Launceston. She knew people in Launceston, obviously. She knew um, some of the harder crooks in Launceston. I think you have her, but <clears throat> she also knew others, but not she wasn't dealing with them all the time. So whether she was going up to Stona, I think, and I look at this uh, maybe a bit romantically in some ways, I hope and I think Angela was going to Launceston to start a new life with Joshua Newman, who wasn't a crook. Joshua just wasn't in that um, group. He didn't involve himself with them. He lived his own life. He'd been brought up, not to say that your upbringing determines who you are, but he hadn't had contact with all these people and maybe Angela saw a new life. Anyway, they went to Launceston, moved into a unit in Ravenswood. We were only there about a fortnight. As it turned out,
0: Marco Rustvelds visited and murdered them both. So Angela was trying to get away But she had her past was so nefarious and complex that this was always going to be a tough ask. She was never going to get away. Angela liked the good things of life,
1: so she'd always find some way to um, look after herself, make sure, like, she didn't work hard for Olivia. but if you were a drug dealer, Angela would find a way to um, have some of your money and um, she taxed you, in effect. But you've got raster holes, Trying to arrange with two others in particular prior to her moving up there, even when she was in Hobart, with a fellow named David Morgan in particular. He was trying to arrange, they were conspiring to murder Angela. Morgan, I don't know to the degree that he would have carried through with things, but did attempt on one occasion to find, locate Angela and um, abduct her effectively. And there was another individual by the name of Matthew Coventry who I knew, Coventry had a um, particular spacing criminal history in Tasmania in that he was charged, when I was at Devonport, Singapore, I charged him and another individual of murder and at the time as a result of that trial for which Coventry was convicted and sentenced for accessory after the fact of murder, a new crime was introduced into Tasmania in effect, failing to report a killing. Coventry, the other individual, Corey Horton, were the two individuals that trial gave rise to this charge of failing to report a killing. Now, Coventry, he was another not high-level crook, so to speak, and look, I don't want to try and build crooks up into anything other than they're not and they're all whatever, but there is a tier, there is a pecking order. Matthew would have been in mid-range and so... Holtz to say, Morgan, well, Lord knows where he'd have been, but he wasn't, he wouldn't have got to middle range But they conspired, that is, and Morgan, to uh, abduct and murder Angela. This had all gone on, but nothing had ever happened, nothing had ever, um, Now, this all came to light after Angela had been murdered. So
0: early on, you hear Angela's death and Joshua Newman's death, you must have been thinking there's a suspect or two. What was the early approach to this? I didn't
1: have any suspect in mind or anything like that. And, look, it wasn't my investigation. It occurred in system. But I'd been contacted by Angela's sister, who was married to um, the well-known individual. They wanted something done. They wanted to know who had killed Angela. So you knew right from the very beginning that this wasn't going to just be a case of the police inquiring, but... A significant number of people had interest in the matter, yeah, right, and those people, um, could look into it themselves. So I spoke to Longceston in relation to that, and they then uh, we discussed how to ascertain the background of Angela, ascertain who she knew, and very early on, very early on, it became obvious that Rust the Holtz in particular. Was the prime suspect, no doubt. There wasn't any requirement for any outstanding leg work, spade work, forensic work. That was all done. But Rust was highlighted very early on, so I don't want to sit here to say that this was one of those cases where we cracked. Dania.
0: No, but the key aspect of this case was the tactical approach to Morgan and Coventry. The task was to change them from suspects to witnesses.
1: And that was the whole thing about this investigation, the number of people that were involved who knew or knew something that when you piece it all together, created a strong case, but having them actually tell you what had occurred. Yep. Because what we do know is Angela and Joshua were killed at their unit in Lodzistan. Rusper Holtz has gone then. He has stabbed Angela to death and beaten her. He was unaware. Newman was in the house. He's upstairs. She's downstairs in this. He's in the bedroom. When he's the commotion, he comes downstairs. There's an altercation. Joshua tries to get out the door, but he's stabbed to death by Rustaholtz. So Rustaholtz has just gone to deal with Angela, and he's ended up killing two people. He then splashes petrol around, which he'd taken with him, so he knew what he was going to do, and set fire to the unit. Sadly for him, he had shut all the doors, shut the windows, and the fire didn't take hold as much as he would have liked. Fire service attend. Now, what he had done, he'd gone home, but that night, that night, after the murders, he travelled to Hobart. To Sally Meyer, Sally McGuire's, his girlfriend, singing was having a party at her house in Glenorchy. So he had come down to that, as had Matthew Commentary and they met there at Sally's. Now, here's the sickening part about it. He has cut her ponytail off, put it in a paper brand, brought it to the party in Hobart at Sally's that night, and shown it as evidence that Angela Hallam would not bother
0: anyone again. Do we now see this as a revelation of motive? Because here he is going to this woman with evidence, proof of the killing. So can we say that he was motivated by his new girlfriend's desire not to have her murdered but to have her dealt with in some way? A lot of people think that. This is my view. My view is
1: he was that angry with Angela Hallam for taking his money and drugs and people being aware of it, that his uh, reputation or what he believed of his reputation was under attack and so he murdered her because of that. So there are varied news. I think he took advantage of the fact that he had murdered Angela and used that, but he did bring a hair ponytail to Hobart to show Sally. Why would you do that?
0: All these individuals you're talking about, Morgan, Sally, Coventry, they all have an association with with either the victim or the killer, Ruster Holtz, and you can use them. You can put a little bit of pressure on them. Here's the challenge to turn these people who have a fair bit of knowledge over quite a bit of time, by the way, and turn them in from suspects into witnesses.
1: That's the big challenge because, in actual fact, on that Thursday, that afternoon, I spoke to Ruster Holtz on the phone. It was, became obvious people were looking for see Holtz, the CIB, the detectives in law system. who want to speak to him. In actual fact, Ruster Holtz, I didn't know he'd been to the party at this stage, but Ruster Holtz phones me saying, I hear you'd like to speak to me. Because I'd dealt with Ruster Holtz before. Ruster Holtz had been charged with uh, drug trafficking. His car had been impounded, but there'd been a large amount of powerlifting near left in his car and he wanted it out. So through another criminal contact, I was contacted and said, listen, he'd like his gear out of his car. I contact the drug squad. Rustaholt gets his gear out. So Rustaholt felt that he knew me. So he phones, says, I hear people want to speak to me. I said, yeah, we do. He then says, got to speak to his solicitor. Spoke to, well, he spoke to two solicitors. The first solicitor had represented Angela, so he got somebody else. And their advice was, yeah, wait, see what'll happen, but maybe go in and see the police and discuss things when it suits him, but no-one was arresting him at that time. However, Coventry Morgan and um, Rustholz were then intercepted in on the Friday after the murder in a car, they had drugs, they're charged, they're interviewed, and they're spoken to about the murder, but all give different explanations, oh, all yeah. give different explanations about things. The end result was that uh, I search out Coventry, he comes in, we speak to him at length and he provides information that certainly doesn't implicate him but draws out other issues that we were unaware of regarding Rusterholz but doesn't implicate Rusterholz. What it does do, though, indicates that Rusterholz had left the party at Sally with a well-known Outlaw Motorcycle Gang member at some stage. What we subsequently discover is this Outlaw Motorcycle Gang member had gone to the clubhouse for the Rebels Outlaw Motorcycle Gang at Kingston, which is a town about 25 minutes south. This was just strange. Why? So over a period of time, the... I and Steve Jordan, Dave Hill, two detective sergeants, form a relationship with the outlaw motorcycle gang member, Brett Inglack. He then begins to tell a story about how rust hawks had come down and told him what he'd done, how he'd killed Angela, how he'd killed Joshua. He then indicated that he'd shown the hair to Sally from Angela. But he'd also brought down with him a boot, a steel cap boot that he'd been wearing at the time of the murder. The reason being, after the murder, he tells Brett Imlac this, and they're not close people. This is another amazing aspect of crime, I suppose. But what he says to Imlac is, yeah, he did all this. Then he went to the Tamar River in North system, threw the knife in it, threw one of his boots in there, intending to throw both in, but the boot didn't sink, even though it was steel Cap boot, didn't sink and float it. So he didn't throw the other one in. So he had this paper bag with the hair in his boot. And he wanted to get rid of them. Imlac takes him down to the Rebels Outlaw Motorcycle Gang headquarters at Kingston and they burn
0: the hair, the bag and the boot. Clean interject there. I mean, Imlac is a bikey. His credibility is based on not helping police. And here he is helping police. How did you get to that point with him? Look,
1: He had been in and out of the Rebels. He had a very, very close relationship with the current uh, president of the Rebels. But that president was using him up all the time. Brett Emelich had been in and out of the Rebels about three or four times. He'd owned two or three Davidson motorcycles that had been taken off him when he'd been booted out from various transgressions.
0: And he wanted to go back again.
1: Bizarre. Yeah, he continually <laughs> wanted to go back. And he understood why he'd been booted out, but they took a motorcycle off him each time. So they saw him, in my view, as a. Um, Source of motorcycles. Yeah, no, yeah, he's this bloke <laughs> who we can rip off. So they were doing that. He's a violent man. They used him when they wanted uh, fists used or they wanted violence. Yeah, Brett would be dragged back in then. So he'd been in and out. What he wanted, though, was he had to get another motorcycle, so he had the opportunity, hey, listen, he knew we had taken drug money from uh, restaurants. His view was you give me that money, I'll tell you about him, I can buy a motorcycle, I'll get into the rebels and you know who the offender was. That's how it started. So then we've got to wrap around the fact that he'll tell us this, we're not getting him a motorcycle, we're not doing any of this type of thing. We want him to not only tell us but then give evidence. We never, ever, ever expected that he would give evidence. But we knew what he was telling us is absolute gold because no-one would ever believe an outlaw motorcycle member would tell the police anything. He also disliked Rusterholz intensely and Rusterholz had caused him problems and we took advantage of that. And that was how we became aware of exactly what had happened. As a result of that, you only need that, what would you say, dash of light into the abyss of this crime. It's like you lift up a rock and you shine light on it. Everything scurries around, tries to get away. We've got to grab up all that scurry and grab it, shine lights, and see what they've got to say. And they began to. People began to say various things. So the investigation's still going on, but this is a Victorian detective saying, one ounce of information is worth a tonne of investigation. Victoria police detectives say that, and they say, right, dealing with informants and dealing with people who have been involved with crime and getting them to tell you things is not thought of as a good career path because it's so easy to accuse the coppers of corruption. It's so easy to say they've got a relationship with these people. It's so easy for proprieties to be called into question. But you get one person, one person to tell you what has happened and you have all the investigation can be focused the problem is uh, nowadays for someone to be an informant, it's that rigorous to mature. And I understandably say, so because of what's happened in the past throughout the world, let alone Australia. But you just see, here is a prime example of if it had not been for that information, no one would have known.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and I think at different times in your career, you had to ask answer that question, you know, are you too close to this crook? You know, how's that relationship going? Is it going to cause you bother? How did you deal with that? I've always said, listen, I've said to
1: the crooks, this is nothing personal what I'm doing. It is business. You have chosen a business to commit crime. I've chosen a business to catch people who commit crime. I'm bound by the law. I will use the law. I won't step outside of it. You can. You can do whatever you like, but it's business. It's nothing personal. And if I can find a way to catch you doing something, I will. If you're clever and you get away with it, all well and good. But I will use everything I can to come after you and it's
0: always business. But you will also use your power of empathy. So you can talk to somebody, you don't have to be judgmental of them, you can actually do your business while being empathetic and they know you're being it, and that's why they tell you stuff. Yeah, and, and I've,
1: I've got no issue with what people do. That's their choice, isn't it? That's the world that we live in. So initially when I was dealing with these people, it used to really impact upon me what other people would think. Why is that detective inspector? Why is that detective sergeant speaking to those people? But, hey, this was business. I used to make sure that there was a record kept of every time I spoke, met with these people. Having said that, some people would look. Oh, he's a bit close to so and so. He's a bit close to so and so. But let me say this: some of these people I spoke to have put more people in jail than the detectives I work with. So, good point.
0: Society is a safer place. Does that make sense, Does that? It does. It does. But I, I guess you're always going to attract attention, though, and that's what you have to live with. So in this case, Brett Imlack was key, but also David Morgan. Early on, David Morgan was identified as a really important source. Absolutely. David Morgan had been, well, we wanted
1: Morgan because there is no doubt Rusterholtz was having him, trying to get him to kidnap, abduct Angela. <clears throat> so the end result was, I believe, Morgan was arrested in Victoria, charged with conspiracy to murder, brought back, and he provides information Supporting everything that had been said, he wasn't involved in the murder of Angela on that night. But he highlights the um, the attempts by uh, Rust Holtz to deal with Angela early on.
0: Yeah. Okay. So he helps out ultimately, but also Coventry is a key witness. What did he provide? Well, on Coventry, look, you never knew whether he had the facts of Matthew, but Matthew did provide
1: uh, background material indicating that. Uh, Rustholz had been in the party, Rustholz had left. The car he'd come down in, he had taken to Sally's, then someone had moved it out to another lady's house and Rustholz claims it had been stolen, but what we did know was that someone else had taken the car and burned it out because there was concern it had blood or stains on it from the crime. And during the prolonged surge of Rustholz's house in Launceston, a petrol container was found and a fragment of DNA from Joshua Newman was found on that petrol container. So, scientifically, this isn't just Plumpton and Crew saying, oh, look, people are saying this, people are saying that. We did have forensic evidence. So when we talk about getting this, getting that, this investigation was going lockstep with the forensic investigators and the crime scene examiners. So... Yeah, there was more going on than just um, me, Steve Jordan, Dave Gill, Paul Turner speaking to crooks. That's, yeah, a lot more.
0: Yeah, that's right. And Steve Jordan was key to this investigation. Steve Jordan was a detective
1: who crooks liked. They wanted to speak to. He was a gave the appearance of a knockabout type of bloke. He's very articulate, very smart. So when I was dealing with IMLAC, I'd take Steve Jordan with me because he could relate to these people. At the same time, what Jordan did later on, whereas I may have been able to get IMLAC to say things and everything like that, made a statement to Jordan and gave evidence. Now, we've gone from an LL motorcycle gang member never speaking to police to an LL motorcycle gang member speaking to police to an outlaw motorcycle gang member actually giving evidence in court. Now... A lot of that's down to Steve Jordan and his capacity to deal and speak with people. That was a
0: skill he had. Mm. So he gets Imlac over the line. You've got Coventry, Morgan's helping. At what point do you say, we've got enough, let's go and arrest Ruster Holtz. The end result was a number of people were spoken to,
1: statements obtained. It was then determined, based on all the evidence we had, that Ruster Holtz could be arrested, interviewed, and I think there was always the hope Ruster Holtz would um, confess. But obviously, as the court case subsequently proved, there was plenty of evidence there. But, yeah, Ruster Holtz never did to this day. He says he never did.
0: And he, his defence was predicated on destroying the credibility of these informants, I presume.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that we'd got it wrong and that um, we built a case around him, I believe he still argues that, Um he can't believe it, but he obviously still argues that. I don't know of anybody that does believe it. I think everybody accepts. Um, he moves to Hobart in the end and um, moves in with Sally. But he's got a wife and eight children, right? They also move to Hobart. They end up living in, uh, well, they're staying where they. Had known criminals' family and ended up having a house from them. But the people who looked after her and the kids had a relationship with Rustholms through the drug dealing. But it was always our fervent
0: hope, belief, that maybe she would give evidence against him. Right, I guess there's all kinds of control people exercise over other people, particularly women. Eight kids, you're about to take the breadwinner away. There's a big conflict for her in in helping you. Well,
1: but we even tried that wedge of hold on. He's got a girlfriend, Sally. Uh, he's down here living with Sally. You're living here. He's had this other. But no, she was uh, loyal to him. Uh, whether that's the case now, I honestly don't know. And I, I doubt it very much. Hopefully she's moved on to um, better things. But, yeah, he's in jail for uh, 45 years. Yeah, how does that sit with you, 45 years, just result? Oh, absolutely. I still see Angela's family and I see the pain there. People tend to, oh, Angela lived in that world and Angela this angle. Angela, and Allen was a kind, caring person in a lot of ways. I still recently spoke to Joshua Newman's mum. Now, she is still in immense pain from the manner in which her son was taken from her. There's no right or reason for that. So when we talk about 45 years is a long time, that's nothing compared to what Angie's family and Heidi is going through. So, Ruster Holtz, nothing personal. You do your
0: 45 years. Yeah, society's safe. Yeah, I mean, of all the cases you could have chosen to talk about, this one's interesting because I guess it highlights that thing. It's doesn't matter who the victim is, yep. whether they're of good character, bad character or indifferent, they still deserve justice and that's what you served up. Now, that's, that's the big argument here. That justice, at the end of the day, justice was served. There was a legal
1: system that used to do it but justice was served. Um, people forget about Joshua Newman and uh, Angela Hall. And she absolutely deserved nothing like this. Joshua Newman deserved nothing like this. And for someone like Rusterholz to take it upon himself to deprive their families, their loved ones, well, listen, mate, yeah, you do
0: your time now. You reflect on it. You do what you like. You go through what you like. That's the way it is. Total vindication. Great investigation. This guy, you got him. On the other hand, you've got one unresolved case. Lucille Butterworth, we've talked about this in our podcast and the extent you went with Carrie Milhouse to get that investigation up before the coroner, you had a fantastic case. You couldn't get it into court. How frustrating was that? Let me say this. You bring up Lucille Butterworth. That was one
1: case that I dealt with, but it's obviously something. And I think for you, Adam, you did the right thing. You created a whole new discussion around it. You brought Lucille to life, which is wonderful. People still come to me, oh, that was a great job you did with Lucille. That was, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that wonderful how you did that? Well, no, it wasn't. We still don't know where Lucille is. No one's been charged. Jimmy Butterworth, the brother, has passed away. It is just so unfair. I said to not please don't be congratulating or saying anything to me because I've got this
0: massive hole, that is. We never solved it. We never even found Lucille. Yeah. Now, listen, just to finish, we had a lot of young people listening to this who might want to go into the job, even in Tasmania. What advice would you have to them about the way your career and the principles which drove it and the net result of what you saw as your service and the way of doing it? I had a
1: really great time. Obviously, um, there are stressful moments. I'm lucky they haven't impacted upon me past my career. I met some great people. I worked with some great people. I keep saying now that um, I don't miss the circus, I just miss the clowns in it. However, having said all of that, I had the opportunity to right wrongs. Tell me this, not many people do that. Not many people get that chance. So, I mean, I know that sounds romantic and I don't want to go on about it, but when you see some people who have got no capacity to right a wrong that's been done to them, something's been stolen from them, they've been hurt or something's happened, then you can do something about that. That's not a bad feeling. That's not a bad feeling. And uh, we talk about the major tryings. And if you get a chance and you become a detective, you'll investigate some significant crimes and people rest their career on that. They're not the things that matter. They're not, because they're always going to be sold. There's always going to be the money thrown at them. It's the day-to-day business of the old people in their homes who had their letterbox smashed up or their windows broken that they sit behind their windows locked at night because they're frightened because people are out there. I made, in all honesty, I made them people feel a bit safer on occasions. If you could do that, forget about the major crime, someone always is going to do that. Someone's always going to run in and do the big crimes and investigate them and they're going to build their career on it. It's the people who haven't got the capacity to do anything or achieve anything that really, really need the coppers because every victim society lets down, doesn't it? If you look at it, we go on about uh, the justice system, the legal system, the solicitors form their own little bubble to operate that. But at the end of the day, we're here, that is society to print one. Every victim has been let down by society, some way, shape or form.
0: David Plumpton, thank you very much for sharing your story on uh, Real Crime Australian Detectives. And let me thank you for your service. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. (laughs) Brilliant. Thanks, mate. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nicolich. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.